Chapter Forty Two of The Lamplighter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. The Lamplighter by Maria Susanna Cummins. Chapter Forty Two. Tis reason's part to govern and to guard the heart, to lull the wayward soul to rest when hopes and fears distract the breast. Cotton. Let us now revisit calmer scenes and turn our eyes towards the quiet, familiar country seat of Mr. Graham. The old gentleman himself, wearied with travels, and society but little congenial to his years, is pacing up and down his garden walks, stopping now and then to observe the growth of some favorite tree, or the overgrowth of some petted shrub, whose neglected, drooping twigs call for the master's pruning hand. His contented, satisfied countenance, denoting plainly enough how rejoiced he is to find himself once more in his cherished homestead. Perhaps he would not like to acknowledge it, but it is nevertheless a fact that no small part of his satisfaction arises from the circumstance that the repose and seclusion of his household is rendered complete and secure by the temporary absence of its bustling, excitable mistress, whom he has left behind him in New York. There is something pleasant, too, in being able to indulge his imagination so far as almost to deceive himself into the belief that the good old times have come back again, when he was his own master. For, to tell the truth, Mrs. Graham takes advantage of his years and growing infirmities, and rules him with wonderful tact. Emily and Gertrude, too, are closely associated with those good old times, and it adds greatly to the delusion of his fancy to dwell upon the certainty that they are both in the house, and that he shall see them at dinner, a cosy, comfortable dinner, at which Mrs. Ellis will preside with her wonted formality and precision, and which no noisy, intruding upstarts will venture to interrupt or disturb. Yes, Gertrude is there as well as the rest, saved, she hardly knew how, from the watery grave that threatened and almost engulfed her, and established once more in the peaceful, venerable spot, now the dearest to her on earth. When with some difficulty, restored to the consciousness which had utterly forsaken her in the protracted struggle between death and life, she was informed that she had been found and picked up by some humane individuals, who had hastily pushed a boat from the shore, and aided in the rescue of the sufferers, that she was clinging to a chair, which she had probably grasped when washed away by the sudden rushing of the water, and that her situation was such that, a moment more, and it would have been impossible to save her from the flames, close to which she was drifting. But all of this she had herself no recollection." from the moment when she committed her light weight to the frail tenure of the rope, until she opened her eyes in a quiet spot, and saw Emily leaning anxiously over the bed upon which she lay, all had been a blank to her senses. A few hours from the time of the terrible catastrophe brought Mr. Graham to the scene, and the next day restored all three in safety to the long-deserted old mansion-house in D. This respectable, venerable habitation, and its adjoining grounds, were nearly the same aspect as when they met the admiring eyes of Gertie on the first visit that she made Miss Graham in her early childhood, that long-expected and keenly enjoyed visit, which proved a lasting topic for her youthful enthusiasm to dwell upon. The great elm-trees, casting their deep shade upon the green and velvety lawn in front, the neat, smooth gravel walk, which led to the doorstep, and then wound off in several directions, into the mass of embowered shrubbery on the right, and the peach orchard on the left, the old arbor, with its luxuriant growth of woodbine, the large summer-house, with its knotted, untrimmed, rustic pillars, the little fish-pond and fountain, and especially the flower-garden, 
during the last season nearly restored, by Gertrude's true friend George, to its original appearance when under her superintendence. It had all the same friendly, familiar look as during the first happy summers, when Emily, sitting in her garden chair beneath the wide-spreading tulip-tree, listened with delight to the cheerful voice, the merry laugh, and the light step of the joyous little gardener, who, as she moved about in her favorite element among the flowers, seemed to her affectionate, loving, blind friend, the sweetest flora of them all. Now and then a stray robin, the last of the numerous throng that had flocked to the cherry feast and departed long ago, came hopping across the paths and over the neatly trimmed box, lifting his head and looking about him with an air that seemed to say, It is time for me, too, to be off. A family of squirrels, on the other hand, old pets of Gertrude's, whom she loved to watch as they played in the willow-tree opposite her window, were just gathering in their harvest, and were busily journeying up and down, each with a nut in its mouth, for there were nut-trees in that garden, and quiet corners, such as squirrels love. Last year they did not come, at least they did not stay, for Mrs. Graham and her new gardener voted them a nuisance, but this year they had had it all their own way, and were laying up rich stores for the coming winter. The old house itself had a look of contentment and repose. The hall door stood wide open. Mr. Graham's armchair was in its usual place. Gertrude's birds, of which Mrs. Ellis had taken excellent care, were hopping about on the slender perches of the great Indian cage which hung on the wide piazza. The old house-dog lay stretched in the sun, sure that nobody would molest him. Plenty of flowers once more graced the parlor, and all was very still, very quiet, and very comfortable. And Mr. Graham thought so, as he came up the steps, patted the dog, whistled to the birds, sat down in the armchair, and took the morning paper from the hand of the neat housemaid, who came bringing it across the hall. The dear old place was the dear old place still. Time seemed only to lend it additional grace, to give it an air of greater peace, seclusion, and repose. But how is it with the inmates? Mr. Graham, as we have already hinted, has been having new experiences— and although some features of his character are too closely inwrought to be ever wholly eradicated, he is, in many respects, a changed man. The time had once been when he would have resisted courageously every innovation upon his domestic prejudices and comforts. But old age and ill health had somewhat broken his spirit, and subdued his hitherto invincible will. Just at this crisis, too, he united his fortunes with one who had sufficient energy of purpose— combined with just enough good nature and tact, to gain her point on every occasion when she thought it material to do so. She indulged him, to be sure, in his favorite hobbies, allowed him to continue in the fond belief that his sway, when he chose to exercise it, was indisputable, and yet contrived to decide herself in all important matters, and had at last driven him to such extremity that he had taken it for his maxim to get what comfort he could, and let things take their course." No wonder, therefore, that he looked forward to a few weeks of old-fashioned enjoyment, much as a schoolboy does to his vacation. Emily is sitting in her own room, carelessly clad in a loose wrapper. She is paler than ever, and her face has an anxious, troubled expression. Every time the door opens, she starts, trembles, a sudden flush overspreads her face, and twice already during the morning she has suddenly burst into tears. Every exertion, even that of dressing, seems a labor to her. She cannot listen to Gertrude's reading, but will constantly interrupt her, to ask questions concerning the burning boat, 
her own and others' rescue, and every circumstance connected with the terrible scene of agony and death. Her nervous system is evidently fearfully shattered, and Gertrude looks at her and weeps, and wonders to see how her wonted calmness and composure have forsaken her. They have been together since breakfast, but Emily will not allow Gertrude to stay with her any longer. She must go away and walk, or at least change the scene. She may come back in an hour and help her dress for dinner. A ceremony which Miss Graham will by no means omit, her chief desire seeming to be to maintain the appearance of health and happiness in the presence of her father. Gertrude feels that Emily is in earnest, that she really wishes to be left alone, and believing that, for the first time, her presence even is burdensome, she retires to her own room, leaving Emily to bow her head upon her hands, and, for the third time, utter a few hysterical sobs. Gertrude is immediately followed by Mrs. Ellis, who shuts the door, seats herself, and with a manner of her own, alone sufficient to excite alarm, adds to the poor girl's fear and distress by declaiming at length upon the dreadful effect the recollection of that shocking accident is having upon poor Emily. She's completely upset, is the housekeeper's closing remark, and if she don't begin to get better in a day or two, I don't hesitate to say there's no knowing what the consequences may be. Emily is feeble and not fit to travel. I wish for my part she had stayed at home. I don't approve of traveling, especially in these shocking, dangerous times. Fortunately for poor Gertrude, Mrs. Ellis is at length summoned to the kitchen, and she is left to reflect upon the strange circumstances of the last few days, days fraught to her with a matter of thought for years, if so long a time had been allowed her. A moment, however, and she is again interrupted. The housemaid who carried Mr. Graham his paper has something for her, too. A letter. With a trembling hand, she receives it, scarcely daring to look at the writing or postmark. Her first thought is of Willie, but before she could indulge either a hope or a fear on that score, the illusion is dispelled. For though the postmark is New York, and he might be there, the handwriting is wholly strange. Another idea, of scarcely less moment, flashes into her mind and hardly able to breathe from the violence of the emotions by which she is oppressed, she breaks the seal and reads, My darling Gertrude, my much-loved child, for such you indeed are, though a father's agony of fear and despair alone wrung from me the words that claimed you. It was no madness that, in the dark hour of danger, compelled me to clasp you to my heart and call you mine. A dozen times before I had been seized by the same emotion— and as often had it been subdued and smothered. And even now I would crush the promptings of nature, and depart and weep my poor life away alone. But the voice within me has spoken once, and cannot again be silenced. Had I seen you happy, gay, and light-hearted, I would not have asked to share your joy. Far less would I have cast a shadow on your path. But you are sad and troubled, my poor child, and your grief unites the tie between us closer than that of kindred and makes you a thousand times my daughter, for I am a wretched, weary man, and know how to feel for others' woe. You have a kind and gentle heart, my child. You have wept once for the stranger's sorrows. Will you now refuse to pity, if you cannot love, the solitary parent, who, with a breaking heart and a trembling hand, writes the ill-fated word that dooms him, perhaps, to the hatred and contempt of the only being on earth with whom he can claim the fellowship of a natural tie? Twice before have I striven to utter it, and laying down my pen, have shrunk from the cruel task. But hard as it is to speak, I find it harder to still the beating of my restless heart, 
Therefore listen to me, though it may be for the last time. Is there one being on earth whom you shudder to think of? Is there one associated only in your mind with deeds of darkness and of shame? Is there one name which you have from your childhood learned to abhor and hate, and in proportion as you love your best friend, have you been taught to shrink from and despise her worst enemy? It cannot be otherwise. Ah, I tremble to think how my child will recoil from her father when she learns the secret, so long preserved, so sorrowfully revealed, that he is Philip Amory. As Gertrude looked up when she had finished reading this strange and unintelligible letter, her countenance expressed only complete bewilderment. Her eyes glistened with great tears. Her face was flushed with wonder and excitement, but she was evidently at a total loss to account for the meaning of the stranger's words. She sat for an instant wildly gazing into vacancy, then springing suddenly up, with the letter grasped in one hand, ran across the entry towards Emily's room, to share with her the wonderful contents, and eagerly ask her opinion of their hidden meaning. She stopped, however, when her hand was on the door-lock. Emily was already ill, the victim of agitation and excitement. It would not do to distress, or even disturb her. And retreating to her own room as hastily as she had come, Gertrude once more sat down, to reperuse the singular words, and endeavor to find some clue to the mystery. That Mr. Phillips and the letter-writer were identical she at once perceived. It was no slight impression that his exclamation and conduct during the time of their imminent danger on board the boat had left upon the mind of Gertrude. During the three days that had succeeded the accident, the words, My child, my own darling, had been continually ringing in her ears and haunting her imagination. Now the blissful idea would flash upon her that the noble, disinterested stranger, who had risked his life so daringly in her own and Emily's cause, might indeed be her father and every fibre of her being had thrilled at the thought, while her head grew dizzy and confused with the strong sensation of hope that agitated and almost overwhelmed her brain. Then again she had repulsed the idea, as suggesting only the height of impossibility and folly, and had compelled herself to take a more rational and probable view of the matter, and believe that the stranger's words and conduct were merely the result of powerful and overwhelming excitement or possibly the indications of a somewhat disordered and unsettled imagination, a supposition which much of his previous behavior seemed to warrant. Her first inquiries, on recovering consciousness, had been for the preserver of Emily and Isabel, but he had disappeared, no trace of him could be obtained, and Mr. Graham soon arriving and hurrying them from the neighborhood, she had been reluctantly compelled to abandon the hope of seeing him again and was consequently left entirely to her own vague and unsatisfactory conjectures. The same motives which now induced her to forbear consulting Emily, concerning the mysterious epistle, had hitherto prevented her from imparting the secret of Mr. Phillips' inexplicable language and manner. But she had dwelt upon them none the less, and day and night had silently pondered, not only upon recent events, but on the entire demeanor of this strange man towards her ever since the earliest moment of their acquaintance. The first perusal of the letter served only to excite and alarm her. It neither called forth distinct ideas and impressions, nor added life and coloring to those she had already formed. But as she sat for more than an hour, gazing upon the page, which she read and re-read, until it was blistered and blotted with the great tears that fell upon it, 
The varying expression of her face denoted the emotions that, one after another, possessed her, and which at last, snatching a sheet of paper, she committed to writing with a feverish rapidity, that betrayed how deeply, almost fearfully, her whole being, heart, mind, and body, bent and staggered beneath the weight of contending hopes, anxieties, warmly enkindled affections, and gloomy upstarting fears. My dear, dear father, if I may dare to believe that you are so, and if not that, my best of friends, how shall I write to you, and what shall I say, since all your words are a mystery? Father, blessed word, oh, that my noble friend were indeed my father! Yet tell me, tell me, how can this be? Alas, I feel a sad presentiment that the bright dream is all an illusion, an error. I never before remember to have heard the name of Philip Amory. My sweet, pure, and gentle Emily has taught me to love all the world, and hatred and contempt are foreign to her nature, and I trust to my own. Moreover, she has not an enemy in the wide world. Never had, or could have. One might as well war with an angel of heaven as with a creature so holy and lovely as she. Nor bid me to think of yourself as a man of sin and crime. It cannot be. It would be wronging a noble nature to believe it. And I say again, it cannot be. Gladly would I trust myself to repose on the bosom of such a parent. Gladly would I hail the sweet duty of consoling the sorrows of one so self-sacrificing, so kind, so generous, whose life has been so freely offered for me, and for others whose existence was dearer to me than my own. When you took me in your arms and called me your child, your darling child, I fancied that the excitement of that dreadful scene had for the moment disturbed your mind and brain so far as to invest me with a false identity, perhaps confound my image with that of some loved and absent one. I now believe that it was no sudden madness, but rather that I have been all along mistaken for another, whose glad office it may perhaps be to cheer a father's saddened life, while I remain unrecognized, unsought, the fatherless, motherless one I am accustomed to consider myself. If you have lost a daughter, God grant she may be restored to you, to love you as I would do, were I so blessed as to be that daughter. And I, consider me not a stranger. Let me be your child in heart. Let me love, pray, and weep for you. Let me pour out my soul in thankfulness for the kind care and sympathy you have already given me. And yet, though I disclaim it all, and dare not, yes, dare not dwell for a moment on the thought that you are otherwise than deceived in believing me your child, my heart leaps up in spite of me, and I tremble and almost cease to breathe as there flashes upon me the possibility, the blissful God-given hope. No, no, I will not think of it, lest I could not bear to have it crushed. Oh, what am I writing? I know not. I cannot endure the suspense long. Write quickly, or come to me, my father. For I will call you so once, though perhaps never again. Gertrude Mr. Phillips, or rather Mr. Amory, for we will call him by his true name, had either forgotten or neglected to mention his address. Gertrude did not observe this circumstance until she had folded and was preparing to direct her letter. She then recollected the unfortunate omission, and for a moment experienced a severe pang in the thought that her communication would never reach him. She was reassured, however, on examining the postmark, which was evidently New York, to which place she unhesitatingly addressed her missive, and then, unwilling to trust it to other hands, tied on her bonnet, caught up a veil with which to protect and conceal her agitated face, and hastened to deposit the letter herself in the village post-office. 
To persons of an excitable and imaginative temperament there is, perhaps, no greater or more painful state of trial than that occasioned by severe and long-continued suspense. When we know precisely what we have to bear, we can usually call to our aid the needed strength and submission. But a more than ordinary patience and forbearance is necessary to enable us calmly and tranquilly to await the approach of an important crisis, big with events the nature of which we can have no means of foreseeing, but which will inevitably exercise an all-controlling influence upon the life. One moment hope usurps the mastery, and promises a happy issue. We smile, breathe freely, and banish care and anxiety, but an instant more, and some word, look, or even thought, changes the whole current of our feelings. Clouds take the place of smiles. The chest heaves with a sudden oppression. Fear starts up like a nightmare. And in proportion, as we have cherished a confident joy, are we plunged into the torture of doubt, or the agony of despair? Gertrude's case seemed a peculiarly trying one. She had been already, for a week past, struggling with a degree of suspense and anxiety which agitated her almost beyond endurance. And now a new occasion of uncertainty and mystery had arisen, involving in its issues an almost equal amount of self-questioning and torture. It seemed almost beyond the power of so young, so sensitive, and so inexperienced a girl to rally such self-command as would enable her to control her emotions, disguise them from observation, and compel herself to endure alone, and in silence, this cruel dispensation of her destiny. But she did do it, and bravely too, whether the greatness of the emergency called forth, as it ever does in a true-hearted woman, a proportionate greatness of spirit, whether the complication of her web of destiny compelled her, with closed hands and a submissive will, to cease all efforts for its disentanglement, or whether, with that humble trust, which ever grew more deep and ardent as the sense of her own helplessness pressed upon her, she turned for help to him whose strength is made perfect in weakness. It is certain that, as she took her way towards home after depositing the letter in the postmaster's hand, the firmness of her step, the calm uplifting of her eye, gave token that she that moment conceived a brave resolve, a resolve which, during the two days that intervened ere she received the expected reply, never for one moment deserted her. And it was this. She would endeavor to suspend for the present those vain conjectures, that fruitless weighing of probabilities, which served only to harass her mind, puzzle her understanding, and destroy her peace. She would ponder no more on matters which concerned herself, but with a desperate effort turn all her mental and all her physical energy into some other and more disinterested channel, and patiently wait until the cloud which hung over her fate should be dissipated by the light of truth, and explanation triumph over mystery. She was herself surprised afterwards, when she called to mind, and brought up in long array, the numerous household, domestic, and friendly duties, which she almost unconsciously accomplished in those few days, during which she was wrestling with thoughts that were ever struggling to be uppermost, and were only kept down by a force of will that was almost exhausting. She dusted and rearranged every book in Mr. Graham's extensive library, unpacked and put in their appropriate places every article of her own and Emily's long-scattered wardrobe, aided Mrs. Ellis in her labors to restore order to the china closet and the linen press, and many other neglected or long-postponed duties now found a time for their fulfillment. In these praiseworthy efforts to drive away such reflections as were fatal to her peace, and employ her hands, 
at least, if not her heart, in such services as might promote the comfort and well-being of others, let us leave her for the present. End of chapter 42